This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that has an extra special guest this week. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me as always is Dr. Anir Banmahanti. G'day, Doc. Hi, Captain. How are you? I'm very well. And we have a special guest, the aforementioned Matthew Joss. G'day, Matt. G'day. Very happy to be here. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you for joining us. All right, this is going to be a big podcast. We're going to try and get in that in half an hour. We'll see how we go, Mm. boys. We don't have really great form on that, but we'll we'll do our level best. We've got a lot to cover today on the podcast. Can Telstra escape from its own sinking gravity? It's been a tough couple of weeks for the Telco, and maybe there's either better or worse times ahead. We'll find out what, uh, what Doc has to say about that. We'll also talk about the healthcare giant Ramsey Healthcare. There's not enough babies being born in its hospitals, apparently, and earnings will be down pretty significantly this year and also into next year. Matt will give us some tips on how to invest in the rest of the world. We'll talk about Disney and Fox in the US and how the entertainment landscape is being reshaped. And because Matt's here as a special guest, we're going to get him to saddle up on the guest saddle on the high horse and go for a quick lap around the Motley Fool Money track and see what he's got to, to offer us by way of a rant. All right, let's get into it. Telstra, Doc, it's been a pretty ugly, well, kind mm. of almost a couple of years now, right? It kind of, it's kind of struggled and fallen and struggled and fallen, but it's pretty much been one-way traffic. What's the latest news on Telstra? What's caused this last round of investor kind of, what do we call it, <laughs> uh, deserting the sinking ship? Or is it a case of maybe a bit of bad news before the good times return? Well, um, Scott, it looks like uh, Andy Penn basically threw the... Um, Oh, kitchen sink, <laughs> trying to solve uh, time, trying to solve Telstra's problems. So, so the news is this: what they did is they're going to now um, have a separate uh, infrastructure business. Mm-hmm. Which they're calling the Infrastructure Co. This is going to house that's novelty. Yeah, <laughs> such a great name. Um, you know, just sounds like NBN Co. Doesn't it? Uh, this is going to house their copper, their high free, uh, you know, hybrid fiber uh, coaxial cables, right. the the fiber network, uh, data data centers, and things like that. So, okay. uh, I call this the old business. Right, right. <laughs> and then they're going to have essentially all the infrastructure that is needed for um, running their mobile network. Mm-hmm. That's going to be part of the separate business. It's going to be separate from that. They're going to have a global services business for doing back office stuff. So I guess the hope with this is that they're going to be able to focus on what's important, which is mobile. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and in the process, they're also cutting lots of jobs. That's not good for morale. 9,500 to be... man. It's about a third of the workforce. Do I remember that correctly? Yep. So is this a case in your mind of, of rearranging deck chairs on a sinking ship or is there is there some promise, some some maybe some positive outcome here in what they're doing in terms of both the restructuring and also they've talked a little bit about things like dropping prices on mobile plans, um, reducing the number of uh, mobile plans from 1,800 to 20, which is some significant cut. Right? Mm-hmm. I guess you can afford to have less stuff if you've got uh, somewhere around you know, 1% of the number of plans left over. What What's kind of going on there? Where, where, you know, is, there is there method to the madness, mate, or is this just a, a rearranging of deck chairs? as I said. Yeah, so the question is, is it, is it, is it too little, too late? Uh, you right, know, or right. We'll only know in the fullness of time. <laughs> I, I think uh, they're doing the right thing, focusing on mobile, mm-hmm. uh, you know, reducing the number of plans down from like, what, you know, 1,800 or whatever it was to yep. like 20 yep. makes sense. Um, uh, I, I think the real neat thing here is that if they can focus on mobile and get ahead of the competition, that's yeah. very, very useful. Uh, they, they might be able to do things around content deals and make, you know, uh, make the data plans free for the content, for example. That could be a way to win. Right, which um, kind of they're doing with NRL and AFL now, right? If yeah. you kind of... 
I've got a, I can enter all that on my phone as long as I'm a Telstra subscriber. I get exactly. Telstra streaming free. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and and yeah. So maybe there is um, there's going to be light at the end of the tunnel, but the, currently the tunnel looks pretty dark. <laughs> long and dark. Uh, right? Long and dark. You know, the operating earnings are going from like 10 billion this year, which is down by another 10 percent next year. <laughs> so, oof. Um, yeah. The big question is the dividend going to be cut? We yeah. Don't, we don't know. Maybe it's likely to be cut, but I don't know. Um, so I think there's some. Um, some process to the madness, mm. maybe mm. here, and we just got to see. There's a big wild card in what's going to happen in terms of TPG, what they're going to do, right? Because they're uh, coming in October, I think, to exactly. the ACT, and then kind of expanding from there. Yep, and and then there's Vodafone and there's Optus, and really, it's it's a, it's a crowded field. So the question yeah. is, is there any growth there over the long term? Yeah, can they maintain their leadership? leadership position in uh, mobile and can they do some value-added services you know uh, maybe they can take a lead from what's happening in the u.s with uh, say play, people like at&t and yeah. verizon and then maybe you know do some advertising and stuff um as as value-added services to yeah now to- let's talk about 5g for a second because 5g is held out by the company and a lot of telstra bulls <laughs> those that are left as kind of the great hope right this is this is what's supposed to save telstra from from relevance or from from some sort of declining terminal you know uh, mm-hmm morass 5g is going to be much much faster than 4g has the promise of higher data plans and for some people are saying it may well even rival the nbn where do you stand on the on on 5g and what you expect kind of the telco or the mobile telco in particular future might look like so so i'm very hopeful about 5g i think 5g can deliver very high speed downloads mm-hmm. um and uh yeah, so it can rival NVN. So, I mean, NVN could be toast, <laughs> which would not be a good thing. Uh, oh, so but- you, say, you say, Kobe, I'm going to put you on the spot. What are the odds that NVN is toast, or at least materially, you know, less uh, less sizable than it is today? If we go outside of 2027, let's, let's make an easy nine, ten years, uh, What what's your guess as to how the mobile slash NBN kind of uh, market looks like? So, in 10 years, and I think if we Okay, so I'm, you know, that's looking out that far as as hard oh, mo- totally. mobile technology. But but if you if you're looking out ten years, I mean, I would think, uh, let's say sixty percent of people might just be on mobile only plans. That would wow. be my guess. Okay, uh, because I would think by that time, mobile technology would have you know uh, ramped up their data speeds mm. so much. And in that, in that environment, uh, the MBN sounds like the number of subscribers roughly halved to kind of make that work if it's MBN, uh, if mobile only for that majority of people. Yeah, yeah, potentially. That feels to me like a tough story for the MBN. A lot of infrastructure, a lot of cost, not much revenue. Uh, we talk about sort of retailers and other companies where you have a small drop in revenue and your whole business plan effectively goes to the mush because you've got such high fixed costs. If I'm running the MBN or any infrastructure utility and all of a sudden you drop my business by half, how do you make money in that environment? It's going to be hard, right? And and I think the issue here is that NBN is also hamstrung by the fact that you know in many places it's just fiber to the curb, and then you're you're essentially running on copper, uh, you know, to the houses or whole units and so on. So that puts right. a limit on how what you can do, and if you can't compete on speed. Uh, then you maybe try to compete on price, uh, so uh, and, and then again you you run into this you know the high fixed cost issue trying to recover this fixed cost over a smaller population pool. All right, I'm putting so, you on the spot one more time. Would mm-hmm. you rather be today Telstra or MBN Co? <laughs> How would I rather be none? <laughs> no, 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 that's not the rules of this guy. I get to make the rules here. Um, what do you reckon, MBN Co? If you had to choose one, or you had to sell the, uh, maybe if you had to, if you had to short one of them, right. only one of them. Which one would you short? Which one would you go long? Oh, if I had to short one and I had to go long one, I'd short NBN. I'd okay. go long Telstra. Very good. Um, yeah, that, that would be my pick. That suits me because I will say I'm a shareholder in Telstra. It is an active record Motley Fool share advisor. Uh, so far, I've been wrong on the timing. I, I still expect to be right on the 
end game, which is to your point, Doc, mobile growth. I think I liked it. I liked Telstra for the for the mobile business, and I, I think I'll still be right on that. What I completely cocked up was the timing of the change and the size of the change on the way through. So I expected that the NBN or the, the fixed loss would be slower and better. Basically, you're better paid by the government for that transition. It hasn't been the case, and there's a massive gap in earnings that's opened up. I, I reckon Tesla's mobile business is in a pretty good spot. It's the only telco that's growing its number of mobile subscribers. TPG will be a meaningful competitor, and so I'll, you know, we need to be careful of that. I like TPG as well, by the way. Um, but I, I fully expect that Tesla's combination of of size, scale, um, content, as you've already mentioned, I, I think is well placed to to win mobile. And, and that doesn't necessarily mean a lot of profit. We've seen plenty of industries where you can be big and not make any money. Take the the airlines, for example. Uh, but I think the mobile business is in a good spot. I, I think the the fixed line business is in massive trouble. And I actually agree with you. On MBN, I think is very probable at 5G, and certainly if we get to a 6G type environment, the chances that we're using large amounts of, of fixed broadband data feels like a bit of a dead end story to me. Motley Fool Money, financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Speaking of businesses in trouble, Ramsey Healthcare. So for people who don't know the name, Ramsey owns a whole lot of private hospitals in Australia, some other clinics. Uh, there's a, a fledgling pharmacy business. It also owns hospitals in France, in the UK, and a couple around Asia. This week it said, well, earnings are going to be down, and it's because people aren't having enough babies. What's going on? Well, just people aren't having enough babies. <laughs> we, we need to encourage more baby births. Peter, you know? Peter Costello famously said everyone should have three, three, uh, three kids, one for mum, one for dad, and one for the country. It sounds like Ramsey might be uh, on the same political playbook. Or maybe they want six. <laughs> I'm sure they'd take it. <laughs> well, well, okay. I may, may, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure. In their earnings um, downgrade that they released, yeah. they didn't. At least I didn't see this, but I skimmed through it, uh, so I might have missed it. But what they basically said is essentially procedures are down. Yeah. Both in Australia and in the UK. Correct. Yeah. Um, and uh, and that basically means in inpatient as well as you know uh, those day day procedures and things like right. that. Um, inpatient yes. being medical speak for people who stay at least one night, right? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Um, it's some of this could be rationalisation by the um, you know uh, by the UK's national health system in terms of you know they deciding you, longer wait periods and so on and so forth, which has an impact on how many procedures are going to be done now. Um, but, but to me, it looks like this is a company that uh, should do well over mm-hmm. the long term. It's never going to be a big grower because, well, you know, there are only so many procedures that happen. Right. And you should expect maybe, you know, mid to high single digit procedures growth over time. Yeah. Because um, there's uh, a decent growth in that, right? We're all getting older, growth. we're living longer, we're all having exactly. more procedures. So uh, it's, it's decent. And the growth so far has been well, largely a, a matter of acquisition. They've got a whole lot of French, UK, Asian hospitals. So to some degree, it's kind of... So you're saying there's a mid-single digit maybe growth in procedures in, in developed markets? Yeah. It comes down to how many either acquisitions or greenfield developments it can do to try and take market share in those other countries. Right. And the, the thing here is that, you know, it's a company that has got well-established procedures. It can take its model and apply it to, say, other emerging economies, right? right, right. And there's a big opportunity there. Um, how material that's going to be to earnings, we don't know whether they're going to be paying a lot to, you know, mm-hmm. acquire into these markets, we don't know. But, I mean, it's been, you know, disciplined so far. Mm. And if it continues on that path, I mean, you know, the downgrade wasn't that 
big a deal to me. It looked like you know they said seven percent growth in earnings this year yeah. versus what they'd guided. I don't know, like nine, eight to ten percent. So I mean, it's a little bit of a slowdown, but now, a little bit of a slowdown. But the shares were absolutely smashed. What's going on? Well, the shares were very expensive on a price to earnings ratio. Right, so right. the market is expecting something. Can we throw in the market cliche price for perfection? Is that a reasonable yeah, starting that's, point that's for Ramsey? That's it. That's a reasonably. Actually, I say that's a very good, <laughs> right. uh, uh, yeah, explanation. It was price for perfection. Yeah. It didn't de- deliver perfect results, and therefore the market took it to the you know. Can we finally smash the whole? Um, what's what's a polite way to say it? Can we smash the whole standby of healthcare being a defensive industry? Nothing ever goes wrong. That somehow Ramsey is superhuman and deserves those. I mean, if forever it's been a case of well, it's Ramsey and it's high quality and it's healthcare, so of course we can pay thirty times earnings. I mean, to, to some degree that always felt like a bit of a, a a bit of a mistake, and and maybe it's easy for me to say in hindsight. But if you think about kind of the way we treat some of these companies, as if nothing could possibly go wrong, they're worth paying anything any price for because somehow being defensive in healthcare must mean that you can suspend the old rule. Yeah, so I I would partially agree with you. If you take a really long term view, and I mean you paid thirty times earnings, and mm-hmm. you you hold this for like ten years, I think you'd make decent money. The odds are that you'd beat the market. Okay. Whether you you know did it at thirty times earnings, of course, if you buy it at twenty times earnings, you're going to do better. <laughs> so yeah. so I mean, cheaper is always better. But you know, it is cheaper today. What if it you know it reported eleven percent earnings growth and not seven percent earnings growth, right, and the right. stock was then trading at like thirty five times earnings, right? Right. right. So, so it's always I think there's a bit of a hindsight bias to that. I mean, we always need to pay the right price for this type of business. It's a mature business, mm-hmm. uh, but we, yeah, I I do think it's defensive. I mean, like, for all the reasons that you just stated, right? Oh, sure. you know, people living longer, longer procedures, improvements in medical uh, systems, software, mm-hmm. you know, medical technology, um, uh, new drugs, and everything. So, it's got a decent tailwind behind it, right? As an industry, we're all getting older. All that kind of good stuff. We're all getting older, yeah. and um, you know, the developed ma- the developing market is you know uh, they are uh, they have more money. They're becoming right, right. you know there's a rising middle class in Asia. So yeah, uh, I think it's it's a good company. All right. Now, Matt, I was going to give you this topic off, but I'm going to drag you in here because you mm. are Mr. Valuation for us, the Motley Fool. So, um, I should for those who don't know, Matt, Matt, you run Motley Fool Pro, um, which is soundly smashing the market. So I'll give you a bit of praise. You won't do it yourself, but I'll do it for you. Very kind. Um, so I'm going to ask you just your, your valuation, not about Ramsey necessarily, although feel free to talk about Ramsey, but 30 times earnings for any company, worth paying, not worth paying? How do you, how do you think about Ramsey at 30 times earnings? Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on the cash flows they're generating to a Neobun's point, right? Like 30 times suddenly looks very cheap if the mm-hmm. if a company's growing very fast. For Ramsey, for me, it's probably a bit stretched, I think, to your point. Like, we're not seeing the type of growth that I'd, I'd like to see. Um, we look to some international companies that are, that are growing um, much faster than mm-hmm. that and at reasonable multiples. So, yeah, for me, it's not so much the the multiple that you might see on earnings. It's it's digging into the the cash discounted cash flow and kind of projecting all that stuff forward. Um, but if you if you back it out, you can't kind of come to similar similar numbers quite often. So I'd say probably a, a similar conclusion, probably a bit stretched around thirty. And nice to get them when they're uh, trading at a discount. All right, now I'm not going to ask you to explain discounted cash flows on on, on radio because that's not particularly great, <laughs> not particularly great listening. Uh, to get the discount rates and, and and compound numbers, but give me the give our listeners the quick thirty second. Maybe a minute if you need to run down on kind of the concept of discounted cash flow. So don't no numbers, just mm-hmm. just pure concept. Yeah. What, what, what <laughs> is I think it? I tried this last time was on. It's very tough. Topic you did, to but do. we've got new listeners since then. Yeah, so yeah, let's yeah, let's, sure. let's try again. I, I've sprung this on you, so uh, yeah. So fair play if you if you, uh, if you do struggle, but I don't think you will. Um, give us a, give us a quick rundown on, on kind of what the idea of discounted cash flow is for. Why you, you would use it valuation wise? Yeah. So essentially, we're trying to get a handle on what drives a business and predict. Mm. 
effectively predict what it's going to do going forward, but it's much more about understanding kind of a range of different scenarios, if that makes sense. So right. yep. the way I typically go through is, is try and get a handle on how much is the business going to grow its revenue over the next, say, 10 years, uh, then work through the whole way through the profit and loss statement, trying to figure out hmm. how much that means for the bottom line. And we focus on cash flow, not profit. The small difference there being that it can be quite easy for a company to manipulate profit. We've all heard right. about companies that make a billion dollars profit one year, and then next year they're suddenly writing off $2 billion and all this kind of funny stuff that speak, can go speak on. Speak <laughs> <laughs> So it strips yeah, out yeah. some of the shenanigans right, that can right. happen. Um, and, of course, there are other shenanigans that can happen with cash flow. But they really don't are. Don't need to get yes. into that. But yeah. um, so that, that's really the key. And then the, the discounted part, all that we're trying to say there is that the dollar that you earn in 10 years' time isn't yep. quite as valuable um, to you as a dollar that you earn right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all know about that from inflation, but it's also just the opportunity cost, right? Like you'd much rather have a dollar in the hand now than in 10 years' time. I so, that's fair to say. Yeah, so that, that's what we're doing. We're really just trying to kind of forecast the cash flows of the business mm-hmm. and then and then discount those back to today. So how much are those worth to us today? That's okay. what we're talking about. How, so effectively, how much of a discount do you want for waiting for those that money to come yeah, in? Yeah, exactly. And that's where the different companies can have different discount rates we're talking about. If something's very risky, you'd probably right, want right. to... Um, discount that more so you okay. want more money in year 10 so a higher margin that. of safety can i say yeah effectively yeah okay. exactly yeah that makes sense thank you Mark. we didn't drag you in for that but thank you no for problem. thank you for jumping in real money advice from real people not just a couple of dicks with a porsche get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple m now, we did speak about the concept of uh, investing internationally, I think you might have mentioned. And mm-hmm. so why we did ask you to come in, other than to uh, to share your massive success in Motley Fool Pro, I want to say the service is up 204%. 204% last Friday, yes. And the market's up about 37% at the same time? Uh, that, yeah. Yes, correct. So 204 is bigger than 37 now? Yeah, okay. yeah. Just, just, just yeah. clarifying that, mate. That is, that is spectacular result. Uh, and and uh, full credit to your predecessors, including including Doc, who was uh, was worked on Motley Fool Pro with you at some point. Um, also to to Ryan, who works with you on Motley Fool Pro now. Um, uh, that being said, and, and and why we asked you to come in, uh, other than to share that success, was you have made something of a success out of investing in international businesses, or maybe we should say um, investing in proceeds from overseas. Tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about how you can invest overseas from here at home. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a, it's a big part of what Pro's done since day one. Mm-hmm. So we launched in 2014. Um, and the the kind of makeup of the portfolio today, we're 100% invested, invested in ASX-listed companies and instruments. That's not what I asked about. I asked about overseas investing. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's what I'm getting to. Uh, so 100% in ASX, but 60% of their revenues or over 60% uh, are generated internationally. So these okay. are companies that are, are listed in Australia, but they're really international businesses. Some of them up to 99% of their revenue is generated overseas. That's a lot, yeah? Yeah, that's a lot. So <laughs> it's quite different from the tr- traditional, the rest of the ASX, right? Like yeah, a lot yeah. of the ASX, I would say, are kind of big fish in a small pond. And yeah, that right. can be really good. You can have a company, particularly if it's kind of dominating its niche, that mm-hmm. can be really good or dominating quite a big area. Yeah. But the, what we like to find is a, a small fish in a big pond that can then become a big fish in a big pond. Nice. So we like to find that small company that's got a really big potential addressable market. So okay. um, I think Anirban talks about this quite a lot, but the, the big total addressable market means a big opportunity for growth. And that's something we like to see. And we typically see that the best businesses 
in our case, not in all cases, but often are companies that can grow and scale that much internationally. So okay. that draws us towards them. So that's kind of the, the fundamental reason, I guess you'd say, that the very best businesses, particularly for thinking like a software business, mm-hmm. they can really, they can ship to the whole world at once, right? Right, right. Okay. So break it down for me a little bit. If you're mm-hmm. thinking about how you're picking stocks at Pro, are you, are you, so are you telling me you're looking for international businesses per se? Or are you just looking for businesses and markets that provide attractive returns? So you Mm -hmm. say 60% of the revenues are from overseas, still 40% from Australia. So in some senses, do you have any businesses that are just purely domiciled in Australia or they all have international exposure in some way or other? Uh, Yeah, actually, that's a good question. I'm just trying to think if we have – I think we have – yeah, we have maybe one or two – yeah, not very many. So is it fair it, to say it's, it's, it's a core part of you? W- mm-hmm. Would you be likely to, to, to pick a company with only Australian exposure? What, yeah. what would to yeah. help that help that decision? Yeah, so we absolutely would. I guess it's there's there's another factor as well that benefits from international. So uh, when you buy international exposure, you're getting huge global diversification. So right, that's right. like another portfolio benefit. So we're kind of pulled in both, both directions, pull us towards this international exposure. So from okay. a bottom-up fundamental point of view, we find often the best companies tend to be growing internationally. And sometimes we'll buy one that's just in Australia. Australian company, hmm. and then it expands internationally, so then it becomes an international company. Um, but there's also a big portfolio benefit. So we get exposure to all these different markets. If something goes wrong in the Australian economy, we're not just hit with that. Okay. Um, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of a case. I won't won't go into that case. I think you've probably talked about it before around Australian housing and oh, the Australian economy. Again. We so, love housing. <laughs> oh God! So there's a, there's I'm a lot surrounded of by to, you people. <laughs> there's a lot of reasons to be cautious, I'd say, and to at least. Um, kind of expose yourself to other markets like for instance the US which is just booming at the moment okay. uh, and and plenty of other markets so that, that's kind of the other the other angle I guess coming okay. from a portfolio construction point of view if you have companies that are growing in all these different areas it's a, a lot more balanced. So let me go back half a step then mm. are you looking for international exposure because in general it's good or because of a concern you have about the Australian market right now if we're in a different situation in five years time are you likely to have more or sorry, less international exposure than you do now is it, is it, is it a response to the time or is it kind of a more basic fundamental investing approach? Uh, it's primarily a basic fundamental investing approach. I don't okay. think we'd ever not have some international um, company exposure and, right. and quite a big chunk. I do think it would vary a little bit though. So, for instance, the uh, the Aussie dollar, you know, there's been times yeah. where we've had a view on that. I'd still have a view that it's it's more likely to fall than to rise okay. from this point relative to the US dollar. So that does kind of shape the, um, the thinking. If we're thinking, well, you know, if the Aussie dollar falls 10%, that's a pretty big um, tailwind. So you're betting on four so, now is that what you're telling me <laughs> i like to have the wind at my back that's all i'm saying that's all i'm saying there. he's a sailor <laughs> <laughs> nice now i'm going to ask one last question because we mm. talked about discounted cash flows before and, and yeah. a lot of people will hear that and think ah matt he's one of those kind of ben graham for those who know him or warren buffett in the early mm-hmm. days for those who know that uh he's the kind of guy who's looking for the the dirty cheap value stuff you know he's mm. not a growth investor because growth investors don't really care about dcfs I would I would posit though that's not necessarily necessarily true of you, and so yeah. I, just help me for those who are listening who feel like you need to be either value or growth, and there's somehow mm-hmm. this dichotomy where the two never actually match up. I don't think that describes your approach. You do speak with a a value investor's uh, lingo, if you like, a value investor's kind of um, mm-hmm. uh, approach. I don't think that necessarily would put you in the usual value investor camp. Just just yeah. give me a sense of kind of the, the the way you mesh those two together to the extent you do. Yeah, I think unfortunately there's a lot of dogma and kind of like religious thinking around value investing. So people say I'm a value investor and so I never invest in something that's growing or that's right, got right. a multiple more you than 20 times. You can't have more than book value, right? Yeah, yeah, that okay. kind of stuff. 
Um, and I think I, I came from a very traditional value investing school. So mm-hmm. came through the kind of Graham and Dodd, you know, style, mm-hmm. um, but then realized that there's this huge opportunity for growing businesses and that you can apply valuation to them as well. So it's kind of the last step in research. Typically, okay. uh, we go and meet with a company, uh, talk to competitors, do a whole lot of deep qualitative research. And then valuation um, using a DCF is normally our last step to kind of see, is this a, a good buy today? So, uh, yeah, it's, it's about merging the two. And I think mm-hmm. that's the area where there's the most opportunity for active managers like us, because a lot of that obvious stuff that was discovered, you know, in the 1930s, that's yeah. mostly gone now. Like right, it's, right. it's very hard to competing literally with computers. Uh, and so I think uh, the edge that we can have is we can um, form a different view by doing a lot of qualitative research that mm. then kind of ties in with that um, more quantitative value investing. So the two are very much joined. Mm. And I think uh, growth, uh, all investing is um, based on valuation, in my view, my style. But it, it still means that I love high growth companies. So most of our companies are growing revenue at 20%, 30% mm. a year or, or sometimes much higher. So I'm going to posit, uh, and you can respond to this, that to some degree where you differ from most value investors, not that you don't use the same toolkit, but you're more prepared to take either a longer-term view or maybe just simply uh, not uh, be so conservative in in being afraid to put in higher-than-usual growth rates. So the average value investor is going to look at Telstra and say, well, it's worth 250 or 280 or something mm-hmm. like that because it's going to go at 4 or 6%. So that, that, you know, when I roll the numbers through a, a complicated spreadsheet, that's what I get. Mm-hmm. You're more likely to look at a company and maybe put in some higher than – Higher estimates of future growth than most value investors would be would be kind of comfortable with. Is, is, that, is that kind of where that kind of diverges a little bit from the yeah. average Graham and Dodd type value investor? Yeah, I think that's quite fair. I think a lot of um, investors will look at a growth company and kind of just be too cautious to do anything more than the next year will be good. And then they just right. kind of stop from there. Whereas really the value, and that's where that long-term time horizon comes in. The real value is just compounding at those high rates. If you can do yeah. 30% for 10 years, that's an insanely valuable company. Mm-hmm. So that's a big part of it. We think about the S-curve of growth a lot. So a company that's just starting to take off, if you think about um, anything that grows biologically, I guess is an S-curve normally as a slow start and then a very rapid ramp up. Okay. So we try to buy companies that are just tipping into that rapid ramp up. And that can mean growth rates actually increase in the future which is not something a traditional analyst would just kind of drag that spreadsheet forward you know dra- drag that cell across right, and just right, kind of right. um, project the recent past and okay. so it's more about kind of incorporating a different view of the future i think okay yeah um i'm gonna get you to hang around because i do have a, a one last task for you at the end of the end of the podcast Sounds good. Uh, if you do want to hear more about motley fool pro we are going to open it in the next couple of days so you can go to www.fool.com.au forward slash triple m sign up for motley fool take stock which is our free investing news letter and we will have some uh, promotional material for you and tell you how you can join motley fool pro which is just absolutely stonkingly smashing the market right now and, and a testament to the guys and, and the work they're doing so if you are interested have a look no obligation of course and, and that newsletter is free regardless uh, but we think we might like what you find doc before we do move on though i want to throw back to you for a little bit because you know you're kind of at the the more extreme end uh to uh to not, very extreme uh, extreme opportunities the service you run but to some degree you know you're less purely valuation concern, but you do share some of Matt's approaches around the total addressable market and looking for companies with big, big futures. I think what combines maybe both of your approaches, and frankly, most of us at The Motley Fool, is that sense that people, I think is it one of our co-founders, David or Tom Gardner, I think says that people have trouble thinking in kind of exponential ways when you start to compound those numbers to Matt's point, that mm-hmm. at some point it's easy to think about, okay, well, maybe it can grow at 5% this year, maybe next year, maybe the year after, or 10%, but maybe next year's got to be 6 and the one after's got to be 4 and then 3 we kind of feel like we're obliged to not extrapolate those that growth too too much, and frankly, we shouldn't for a lot of companies because they can't do it. 
But where we, you know, no one, no one feels comfortable. Most people don't feel comfortable putting a spreadsheet thirty percent growth for five years. It just it feels like you're being too optimistic somehow, and somehow you're you should be forced to to rein that in somewhat. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of typical of your approach as well? Yeah. So, uh, so I think the the uh, the thing that I would say is that what Matt pointed out, right? Most people when they do the spreadsheet, they are doing well. It was ten percent last year, so I'm going to put in ten percent this year, maybe eight percent next year, six percent, five percent, and then I'm going to put a terminal rate of two. Yeah. But yeah. if you know the companies that Matt is looking at, a lot of the companies that we look at extreme opportunities these are really small companies and they've just started their you know their journey right right so they're going you know i have companies that are growing at 100 percent right right there's no reason for me to believe that it's going to now next year grow at five percent right yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, in fact if it's growing at 100 percent and it's you know taking market share um it could grow at 200 percent next year yeah right. Makes right. Sense. so if if you've got a high growth rate company i think a lot of the a lot of the traditional approach you know, disappear. So I, I think I completely agree with that. Um, yeah, we are more we are more uh, growth focused, and we mm. also look at the total addressable market. So if you know, uh, which is not important when you're looking at something like you know Telstra, because you know mm. that well, it has the market. <laughs> 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 it's total addressable market. It's got already right, got the market, right, and right. there's only you know terminal growth that's going to be yeah, yeah. to be had, right? Yeah. Uh, so yeah. I'm going to I'm going to let Matt jump back in here because I, I my view generally speaking just after you guys have just talked I think to my mind the the art of valuation becomes more important the the smaller the range of a company's possible growth outcomes is so you know if you if you get if you get a, if companies going at somewhere between twenty and thirty percent for ten years. You can probably reasonably get, uh, as long as you're not paying, you know, a, a huge price. You can get a reasonable sense of de- getting decent value from that. There's very little chance the market's fully valuing a company is going to grow at twenty percent for ten years. Just the market tends not to. On the flip side, to your point, Doc, about Telstra, it's going to grow at something. Maybe it's going to decline, quite frankly. And so, if you get the valuation wrong, it's almost impossible for the company to, to have enough opportunity to grow in in a way in a way that's going to make you make, make that valuation worthwhile it, it, matt just from your perspective is that, is that a reasonable set of assumptions that the lower the growth rate the more precise your valuation needs to be to be right or to not be wrong maybe to the point yeah i think that's a very fair point um so i think i shared this last time they were on uh, but the kind of metaphor i like to think about with valuing a company is kind of like valuing a tree so the traditional okay. value investing view would look at a tree like say it's you know two meters high it's the big it's not too big right now and that's Say, well, the value of that tree is you could cut it down and it's timber, you know, cut it down, it's dead, it's timber's worth, I don't know what you can make, a couple of baseball bats or something. <laughs> but, uh, but the more growth value investing would look yeah. at that tree and say, well, that's actually a redwood tree. That's going to grow to be one of the biggest trees in the forest. We shouldn't be valuing that on what it is today. We should be valuing what it's going to be in the future. Nice, there you go. And so I think that kind of, yeah, that captures it. If, you're, if, you're, if a company is fluctuating between 2 and 3% growth, you've got to be pretty precise to have a meaningful difference to everyone else in the market. Mm. And I think all of our, all of our advantages... Um, come from exploiting um, inefficiencies in the market and mm-hmm. mistakes other people make. And it's just a very common mistake. People can't um, project for that much. You know, yeah. A lot of the rest of the market are focused on their quarterly bonus. They're not thinking three, five years from now. Right. I think if you told most analysts um, what the top company would be over the next 10 years, but it's going to fall 50% in the meantime, they'd be looking to short it. They'd be <laughs> like, oh, when should, I, when should I short that <laughs> right, stock that's going right. to fall? Whereas we'd be like, okay, clearly, let's yeah, just put yeah. everything into that. So, we'll ride the wave. Yeah, and, and get exactly. The, 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 okay. So yeah, that would be, I think, uh, the, the big difference between the two. Nice. Value stocks. Market. Stock market. Index. Share market. This is Motley Fool Money. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Doc, you keep a close eye on what's happening in the US. We've also talked a little bit about content and telco so far today. Mm-hmm. 
wrapping all that together, thinking about streaming content in particular, lots of stuff going on in entertainment, mm-hmm. there's a tussle over some of the assets of 21st Century Fox. So we all know the, uh, fair disclosure, I used to work for the company, we all know the, the, the trumpets at the beginning of the movie, we know the fanfare and the, and the big logo. Rupert Murdoch's empire is kind of likely to be sold off in bits. And at the moment, there's two people bidding for it, two very, very different bidders. One entertainment company who kind of wants to add Fox's assets to its stable. The other, a different company that's kind of facing its own structural issues and trying to find a way to remain relevant. Tell us what's going on and, and kind of what you find from this story. So I can give you a one-word answer. What's go- <laughs> the one-word answer is Netflix. Actually, a very quick conversation, but um, give, uh, give us give us a couple more. Yeah. Just to I'll, I'll disclose I hold Netflix shares. All right. Um, so I think what's happening is uh, with Netflix's over-the-top streaming has basically changed the game in content distribution. Right. And that's making the old guard essentially rethink what they can do. Uh, one of the things that's happening is these big content companies, they want to all merge, maybe cut costs, and then maybe look at ways to distribute um, efficiently in the Netflix Netflix way. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in this particular case, uh, so Mordak's company, uh, Disney is interested in most of Fox's movie assets, mm-hmm. uh, TV studio assets, and uh, Disney has plans to do its own streaming service, like in Netflix, and therefore having this content right, okay. would help. Okay, so it builds uh, the library, it, gives them some critical mass. Exactly. Okay. Um, and, and brings, you know, and they can add some things to their Disney, uh, I don't know, parks and so on and so forth. Right. right, and they've done pretty well with they bought Pixar, they bought the Star Wars franchises. Yes. They, they've done a pretty good job of buying, buying and aggregating that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, Comcast, on the other hand, is uh, is essentially saying, well, you know, I provide broadband. So just to, just to, for those who don't know Comcast, how should we think about Comcast? What sort of business is it? Think of it as Telstra. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, is, that a, is that a pejorative? But Telstra without a mobile business, well, right? Without so a mo- without a mobile. Are, they, are they more Foxtel than Telstra? Um, they're basically, they provide broadband, right? Okay. They, they provide broadband. So, I mean, okay. they have a broadband business. Right, right, right. And, and I think the idea here is that if I can have content added to it, then right, I can okay. make some of that content free for my broadband users. Okay. And therefore, there's an added value, essentially. You, you, right. you, you have the distribution. So, be, they want to differentiate themselves against other broadband providers exactly. by having, having some sort of content that goes along with the parcel. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know whether any of this is going to actually work out well for <laughs> uh, either Disney or Comcast. What I do know is that this might work work out well, very well for Murdoch. Right. <laughs> right. If there's a bidding war, he makes a lot of money. Very true. Very true. <laughs> uh, which is good for him. He's done very well uh, in the he's, past. He's, sure he's done very well. well, you know, because uh, the bid started at around $50 billion uh, from Disney uh, for buying these That's assets. A lot, right? That's a lot of money. <laughs> and this is American $50 billion. Yeah, right. Um, and then uh, Comcast came in with $65 billion. Wow, okay. Right? It's really desperate. Yeah, well, now yeah. Disney is really desperate, and Disney is saying, well, I'm going to pay you $70 billion. Okay. Right? Maybe Mordek is waiting for somebody else to come in. Now, tell me how Hulu kind of... Tell me what Hulu is and why, why Hulu is important in this conversation. So, Hulu is a streaming service. Okay, so a Netflix-ish kind of It's a service? Netflix-ish. Okay. Uh, which is one-third owned by, I, I guess, um, Fox's right. know, um, assets. Yep. Basically, you know, they have shares in it, one-third of the shares. Mm-hmm. Disney is another shareholder. I believe right. in Hulu. So, I mean... Th- and if Disney buys Fox, effectively, they get majority control of Hulu, They got right? majority control of Hulu, and they maybe, you know, look to merge Hulu and their own streaming service. So, you know, there's some maybe game plan there. Right. Um, I, I think all of this, if I have to say something, is um, they are 
too late to the game in the sense that Netflix has got what 125 million people worldwide Netflix is no longer just a distributor of content it is the largest producer of content today right it's spending eight billion dollars on contents I think um, you know and then the content production if you think about people who produce content they look at Netflix mm-hmm. and say oh they have a new way of doing things we get all this you know uh, 125 million people worldwide that we can simultaneously to distribute our content to they don't do pilots like the other studios do um, it's very liberating for the artists and therefore right. the artists you know are 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 migrating towards uh, the likes of Netflix. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so it's, yeah, it, it's Netflix and the tech eating the dinosaurs' lunch. So, do, do, does do, does either party win or do better by buying uh, Fox? Or do you think they're both wasting their money because they can't compete with with the likes of Netflix? So, I don't have a firm view on it. I mean, big mergers are hard. Right. <laughs> so you pay $70 billion and right. you try to get some cost energy. Some people are going to be really annoyed. They're going to lose their job. You're going to try to, you know, streamline sure, sure. things. I really don't know. I mean, but what can Disney really do? Mm-hmm. I mean, Disney is caught in the middle and has to do something. So. And, and I, I have to reference at least one of the big failed takeovers of, I want to say the late 90s, I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. it was. AOL, the internet provider, and Time Warner, mm-hmm. the, the, the movie studio, among other things, kind of merged and created AOL, Time Warner. It was a horrible, horrible deal. It got broken up subsequently. Comcast and Fox feels a little bit to me, a little bit like the same, this kind of unholy marriage. It feels, at least at least you know, price aside, the assets feel like a, a better fit inside Disney simply because Disney has the background. It's already in the content business. Disney feels like the more natural home for the Fox assets and probably a, le- a lower risk acquisition. Is that fair to say? Well, I, I actually disagree with that. The okay. reason I, I disagree with that is, I mean, Disney knows everything about making movies. Right. It knows about making shows. Why does it really need Fox's assets? Actually, it could continue creating good movies. It's got mm-hmm. Pixar. Mm-hmm. It's got uh, um, the Star Wars franchise, right? Okay, I but mean, it's bought Pixar and Marvel and, and Star Wars before and done very, very well. Why would Fox be any different, do you think? I, I think that was a different time, right? The, okay. You know, the distribution was essentially entirely theater-based and then, you you know, you did distributions of DVDs and then you you put these uh, things on iTunes and Sounds so on and so forth, yep. right? Uh, but it's, it's a different world today. Right. And, and I think in that, you know, you don't, they don't need new content. I think they've got enough content of right. their own. They can produce new content on their own. So I'm not really sure what actually this gives them or as a uh, netflix shareholder maybe you're happy it doesn't become a viable competitor to netflix um none of these guys are any <laughs> anywhere near beating netflix you know uh netflix has beaten them to the punch <laughs> uh, i mean it's a bigger company today right, in terms right. of market capitalization yeah, than disney that's so. amazing hey yeah absolutely astonishing motley fool money for more go to fool.com.au forward slash triple m all right, now we couldn't let you go, Matt, without an opportunity to saddle up on the Motley Fool Money <laughs> high horse and take us for a lap around the track. Mm-hmm. What has got your blood boiling this week, mate? I think I'm generally a pretty happy guy, Scott. So you asked me this this morning, I was, I was trying to struggle, but... Yeah, to talk about uh, housing, man. Really. <laughs> oh, housing is beautiful. For lot. Scott insisted I take a break from the housing high horse. Uh, so, so that, that poor horse has been flogged with an inch of his life. Uh, Let's give that one a rest. And, and jump okay, up. fine. Let's I, find I wouldn't horse. insist. Yeah, so something that has been on my mind recently is uh, fake AI companies. So Fake AI? Fake AI. So I, I love AI companies. And Nearbone, I know, is a big fan. He has a PhD in computer science. We talk about this stuff a lot. We do. So I love... We love real uh, companies that are really pushing the envelope here. But it just seems to be the flavor of the month now is for any tiny little small gap with zero revenue to say that it's an AI company just because it plugs in. Maybe it uses some data or, you know, it runs, I don't know, probably an Excel spreadsheet on it. Uh, And so it's just quite frustrating for someone who really appreciates uh, good businesses that are pushing uh, technology on the cutting edge uh, to, yeah, to have to deal with that. So, so, okay, are you saying these companies are frauds or that maybe they're being a little bit too liberal with the truth, calling themselves AI, or is AI just 
become such a, a nonsense term that it's almost irrelevant now. I think that they are just pushing the envelope. I think this happens every time with every um, wave. So every company was an Internet of Things company a few That's you know, right. a couple they years were ago. Too. And then they were all some, like, all well, the miners were doing something yes, for electric lithium. card, lithium. Yes, yes. And graphene and before graphene that, Graphene and rare earth materials and all this stuff. Um, and it's just rubbish. And it kind of distorts the picture for anyone who's really legitimate, which is what I like to look at. So, yeah, that, those guys those guys get my blood boiling. All right. And, and how do you define the difference between real and fake AI? Just if, if, if for our listeners who are thinking, mm. okay, well, I kind of like the idea of AI. You like the idea of AI from what you're telling us. Yeah. What, what, what? Give us a couple of pointers to what our listeners should be looking for if they're trying to think about, yes, they've all got exciting stories. And so, you know, we all open open an email or open a newspaper or maybe you're on a chat forum and you see this great story about this new AI company. Mm-hmm. Um, frankly, some of them probably sound like you think they're going to win, but then a lot are probably not going to win. Mm. Uh, without giving away all the secret sauce, how, how, do you, how do you go about differentiating what you think is real, valuable business kind of um, value creating AI and mm-hmm. what is just smoke and mirrors yeah I guess there's a lot of smoke and mirrors on the ASX unfortunately <laughs> at the small cap the very small end of the spectrum Amen. so I think a big thing for me is just uh, are they able to generate revenue from this opportunity that they're, that they're presenting so uh, a company there's often you'll get these companies that are talking a very big game and there's no customers <laughs> that are willing to pay them for that so it's I mean sure maybe Other they're going though. to maybe they're going to become great maybe yeah. that maybe but uh, I, I like to see is there people who are actually willing to pay for what you're offering Okay. And particularly around the AI, is this something that is really making a meaningful difference to the product? Like, do customers, does that, yeah, that's kind of the big factor. And then, I guess, do they control it or is that, are they really just packaging up someone else's product? Like, right, okay. Um, if McDonald's opens McDonald's.com, it doesn't make it a tech company, <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know about that. <laughs> BigMac.com might be fine. Uh, so, is it is evidence the difference in it? Uh, looking through what you're saying, I think what you're saying is, there's all the hype is fine, and mm-hmm. yes, if you were to buy, you know, the eventual winner, if you bought Amazon at five cents, you're going to make a fortune. Yeah, but it took a while between that price and some other price before you knew it was actually a viable business with a, with a decent future. Yeah, is, are you looking for kind of a point at which you feel like the AI is demonstrating value in and of itself to to kind of jump on that bandwagon? Yeah, I mean, it's it's possible to go earlier, and there's be some that you could identify potentially, but a very easy test is just traction. Are there people right. that are willing to pay you real money from their <laughs> wallet for the AI that you're selling? Not Bitcoin. Uh, it's <laughs> a whole nother wave <laughs> my blood's boiling more than I thought I'm not as, angry, not as happy as when I started this conversation uh, yeah so I think it's a, a real traction and do you really own the product I guess is the other big one Are you just pl- if you're just plugging in someone else's right, thing okay. they're the ones that really own it they're the AI company very, very good. Gents, we have gone well over time, but thank you both for your contributions. That does wrap us up. But before we go, don't forget, you listener can subscribe to the Triple M Motley Full Money podcast, and we think you should, through iTunes or your favorite Android podcast app. Close your ears, Doc. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a big five-star rating because it does help us. It helps other people find the podcast, and we do really appreciate your feedback. If you do want to get in touch with us, info at fool.com.au, or you can follow us on Twitter at the Motley Fool AU. Very surprising, I know. Send us a, send us a question. Send us a comment. Let us know what you're thinking and what you'd like us to talk about. Well, that's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of Foolish Insight. Fool on. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.